all you writers who read, I'm Gary McBride, and I'm joined by Whitney Pinion and Mira Landry. Now, we've all been told that to become better writers, we need to be better readers, but no one says how. Well, this podcast is all about how. By reading and analyzing a new novel published within the past two years, our discussions focus on the underlying techniques, how the author used them, and why. We don't criticize, we don't judge, we study and dig in, and what we seek is what we can apply to our own writing. We are Writers Who Read. This is Episode 2, recorded on December 3, 2023. Today's novel is Trust by Hernan Diaz, published in May of 2022. Welcome to Writers Who Read. I'm Gary McBride. I'm Whitney Pinion. And I'm Mira Landry. The book today is Trust by Hernan Diaz, and it took the Pulitzer Prize. It, it was a co-winner with Barbara Kingsolver, Demon Copperhead. The play on David Copperfield. Right. Right. We are Writers Who Read, and... We try and understand what an author put into their book to make it successful, to tell their story in a way that it would reach a reader and help explore new ideas, whether it be about society or mm-hmm. the human nature, etc. But we mm-hmm. just try and, as Whitney so eloquently said the last time we chatted about the tapestry, what was mm-hmm. your tapestry metaphor? That a book is like a tapestry. And what we do is flip that tapestry over on its back and take a look at how it's constructed. Trust by Hernan Diaz. It was published in 2022 by Riverhead, which is a very prestigious imprint. Mm-hmm. Uh, Why lot- is it prestigious? Just over the last six years, I've noticed that the Riverhead imprint, they have high aspirations. They have literary aspirations. They're trying to put out new art. Yeah, Mm. exactly. So whenever I see Riverhead, it's like, okay, this book has a certain aspiration. And then I read the book to see if it matches that. So you trust when you see the (laughs) Riverhead. (laughs) There are going to be a lot of bad puns, I'm just saying, for this episode. I find that really interesting, actually. That's how... I was encouraged to find poetry is through the publishers and mm-hmm. not necessarily through authors because poets don't often put out a lot of books. But if you're looking to find poetry, you should find an imprint and then just keep finding books through that publisher because they tend to yes. put out similar works. It's kind of like movies, like A24 is a good studio for like independent, interesting films, right? So you right. find, yeah, one studio well, or house. And as Mira, I'm sure, can talk to, that has a lot to do with the people who are working mm-hmm. at the particular houses mm-hmm. and what like what excites them why do they get up in the morning and do their job it's the kinds of books that they're looking for and they're publishing and mm-hmm. the authors that they're encouraging tell the story that you told about Hernan Diaz's first book oh he went through years and years of rejection for what he'd written short stories novels etc I, I don't actually know what he wrote prior but in the distance after many rejections and being unagented, the, I'm forgetting the name of the publisher that it went through. Well, let's see. Coffee House Press. And they have one day a year where they accept unagented submissions. And he went for it. And they took him on. And then that book ended up being a finalist for the Pulitzer. Wow. So that's how he ended up here. And this is his second novel, obviously. So he's not some... You know, he hasn't made all the connections in New York, even though he's lived in Brooklyn for over 25 years or something. Uh, At the time when he was publishing In the Distance, it was a very exciting deal for him to get this publication with a small press and then have it be awarded. 
That's inspiring. Very inspiring. Very (laughs) inspiring. He was born in Argentina. He moved to Sweden, lived in London. Now he lives in Brooklyn. I guess he's of Italian. His mother was an Italian immigrant to Buenos Aires. And the little bit that I heard of him talking was that when a lot of people were leaving Italy, it was New York and Argentina or something along those lines. Like It was the same generation that left and landed along the coastline. So. Mm. He researched his book on a Coleman Center Fellowship at the New York Public Library, and he did all of his writing at the New York Public Library. He had his own little office in the Hmm. library itself, which is available only to research fellows. He wrote his book entirely in longhand, using a single fountain pen. (laughs) Aren't writers superstitious like athletes that way? uh (laughs) Um, He used words and names uh, that are multifaceted. So the Mm -hmm. very title of the novel trust has so many different meanings bond as well the Mm -hmm. title of the novel in the novel and then futures which was the final i guess the name that ida gave to mildred's diary because that last section is actually about her predictions for the market oh so i don't know because she does actually divulge her system and how her husband would consult her on all manners <laughs> regarding the stock market. But I don't know where the title came from. True. If it's what she gave the, the section or if Ida gave that section. When you open the book, Trust, you first encounter a table of contents, which is very unusual. A table of contents, which looks like a collection of short stories or a collection of objects that are not necessarily chapters in a book. So the first part is actually a novel within a novel that Diaz created that is written by this fictional novelist whose name is Harold Vanier. Is it Vanner? Vanner. I think it's Vanner, but the fact that you're using Vanier is Freudian slip. Well, in fact, Diaz said that it's a combination of vain and vanish. Because Andrew makes him vanish Mm. right yes he makes him disappear because you can do that with a lot of money one of the key things that he wanted to debunk in this novel was the myth of raising oneself up from one's bootstraps and he does a really nice job of that on page one because he had enjoyed almost every advantage since birth one of the few privileges denied to benjamin rask was that of a heroic rise His was not a story of resilience and perseverance or the tale of an unbreakable will forging a golden destiny for itself out of little more than dross. All right. This is not a rags to riches story. This is a riches to riches story. If newspapers, if the Federal Reserve is going to disagree with him, he's going to destroy them as best he can, destroy every other voice that doesn't agree with himself. So that's the kind of privilege. And I guess we could also talk about male privilege because this is a story of women's voices. So the whole idea of privilege, the whole idea of who has it and how do you get it, that is what he put at the very beginning of the of the book. So that's the first part. And then the second part is a sort of an outline of an unfinished autobiography, which is difficult to read. I'll just say that for a number of reasons that that we can talk about. Yeah, it sounds, the voice is so conceited and arrogant, and then it's like half finished. It's laughably arrogant. Yeah. That's how I would describe that Comically. Comically comically arrogant. But you notice when you're reading it that there's these random connections to the novel you just read. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And so by the time you read part two, you realize that the novel itself is a novelistic treatment 
of a quote-unquote real person who is the author of his own autobiography in the second part. So you get the sense that you're looking at a version of reality in the novel, and you feel as though you're getting closer to the truth when you read the man's own words. But then the third part... I was going to say it's almost like a prism. So you get different perspectives of the same image Hmm. or the same story in each of the four different parts. And each one builds on the one before it to form a complete picture. So Whitney, tell us about the third part. Tell us about the third part. I would describe as the most compelling, propulsive part of the novel. That's the part where I felt the most engaged with that particular narrator. And that's where I felt like she was investigating what to her was a mystery and so as she's doing that, we are also putting together the pieces of this book. The dots trying, start coming together from yes. the two yeah. first per, You two start parts. being able to connect the dots from the previous two sections of the book and questioning what you've read before. Right. So on the surface, the third part is written by a woman named Ida Partenza, and she has been hired by Andrew Bevel, who is... Who is the author of the partial the memoir <laughs> in the second section of the yeah, book. Yeah, the second section. And we find out that she has been hired to ghostwrite his autobiography. So now we're seeing yet another surface of the prism or level of the story. So now, so first we get this novelistic treatment of Andrew Bevel's life. Then we get his own take on his own life. And then we get an outside observer's take on Andrew Bevel. The first novelistic part is almost exactly one third of the way through the book. The second uh, autobiography, thankfully, uh, is much shorter. (laughs) It's mercifully short. Yeah, and by the time we get halfway through the book, we're a good way into Ida Partenza's memoir or remembering of her time spent as Andrew Bevel's secretary. That's when the book really heats up. Mm -hmm. Now, to talk about the fourth part, we actually have to go back to the first part. And I think we need to talk a little (laughs) bit more about Bonds, a novel, Mm -hmm. and... One of the things that, okay, I'll just admit up front, I was not a fan when I first started reading this book. My first thoughts were something like this hasn't been published in a hundred years and there's a reason why. I was not connected to any characters. I think we vastly have discussed how there was no dialogue except for the one word in the first 50 pages and there's very little interiority. And I think anybody who's reading modern literature would say, that's not very common and it's not something that we often see published. And so you can't help but open this book and read 50 pages and go, why was this published? But then you, I started to connect to the character Helen Rask in the book. And I thought it was really fascinating that this book started talking about Benjamin Rask when the only person I was connecting to was Helen. So as we move through the story and out of Bonds and into the memoir and then into Ida's perspective, we slowly start to realize that Helen, a.k.a. Mildred, is actually the protagonist of the story. Which I would actually say is a co-protagonist of the story, which I thought that Ida was the other protagonist of Uh, the story. We can talk about that. Yeah, yeah. definitely. So let's start with... um, what turned you off to the writing of the first part? And it was very deliberate by Mm -hmm. Hernan Diaz. When Diaz took this to his editor, the editor came back with a note, which is, do you realize that in the entire novel, you don't have any physicality? The novel bonds. The novel bonds, right. You don't have any physicality. We're not ever in scene. And Diaz... So that would be all exposition. All 100% exposition, narrative. 
And Diaz was delighted. He said, good, you noticed. Mm -hmm. So in other words, that was his It was deliberate. And that was very common for 19th century fiction. So can I, what I bring to this (laughs) discussion in this book, I come from this as an English major who spent a lot of time reading Edith Wharton and Virginia Woolf and actually had maybe more patience than today's average reader Mm -hmm. reading a novel. And I trusted that this, <laughs> this, this, this yeah, yeah, that this story was going to take me, I don't know, I trusted that this was going to lead me someplace interesting and had the patience to stick out the first whatever hundred pages it was when other people might have given up. But I also was a little alienated by the distance. There was a lot of distance yeah. where you were hovering above these characters. There was no dialogue. There was not a lot of interiority that was pretty off-putting. Yeah, yeah. and two yeah. things to, I mean, saying... Edith Wharton and Virginia Woolf, obviously, Hernan Diaz said he read those writers. And I mean, I think his launch party for this book was at the Wharton home. So clearly yes. she was a huge influence. Sure. So if you were familiar with their writing, then you yeah. would uh, appreciate and see it on this page. The other thing you said was about trusting the author. And I think this is such an important lesson for so many writers. If you're writing a novel and you've had beta readers or critiquers come in and give you feedback, I think one of the most frustrating things as an unpublished writer or when you're just getting started is that people don't trust your writing. They're looking for your mistakes. And it's really hard to get an honest opinion because of that. Yes. And I think when you're reading an author who's published, we naturally give them more Credence or benefit credence of the doubt. Credibility. Yeah, yeah, credibility to that yeah. because we're like, well, you know, they got published. Clearly, and they're an a editor Pulitzer Prize this. winner. Yes, and yes. they're Pulitzer, Pulitzer, whatever. Yeah, uh, prize winner. <laughs> so we're, we should trust this author. But I think it was really hard. And I think a, I think if you go and look at Google reviews of this book, you will find a lot of readers who had a really hard time trusting that this author was going to turn it around because. For a hundred pages. We are in a 19th century antiquated style of storytelling, which when you get to the end of the book, you realize is absolutely brilliant and so necessary to the story. But it's really hard to trust the author because he's such a new author. This is his second novel, you know, especially if you haven't read his first to say, what is he doing here? But if you are being a deliberate reader, mm-hmm. which is but which is what we do as writers who read, we are very active readers. And TM. if you were <laughs> and if you are paying attention to those title pages before each section, it actually says a novel by, and here's this fictional character who wrote this novel. So you're gonna suspend disbelief. Right. It's a novel with For that a novel. first section yeah. and say, okay, he's the author is clearly playing with form here, experimenting. I'm going to go along for the ride. Let's Mm -hmm. see what happens here. So there are a couple things I want to add to this brilliant discussion. Mm -hmm. One of which is when I pulled the room today, Mira and I are in the minority. We are. Yeah. (laughs) The people who did not care for the first section of the book. Correct. So most people in the room, and there were maybe 20 people there today, I would say 15 said, I liked the opening of the book. I was fine with it. I thought Mm -hmm. it was good. And then Mira and I are looking at each other going, what, <laughs> what did we... we... We disliked it for different reasons. Okay. You had a problem with the actual prose. You said it was yes. the writing. For me, yeah. I was thinking I was, I was fine. I, I don't mind a lot of exposition. I can get into it. What I felt, and even I get it now looking back because it's supposed to be this style of writing that was very popular then. That's how it would have been with that lack of interiority. I could even withstand not having the interiority there. It was there. It felt like there was no goal. I didn't have a dramatic question for the opening of the novel. And while I was thinking, okay, I get there's a style here. It's supposed to be written in this. We're still a modern audience. Like, can't you give this modern audience a dramatic question in the opening of the book? Can't you say what we're going to be working towards? 
you know, considering Helen doesn't become a part of the book. And as I was reading, I, I'll give this tip to any reader. If you're really bored, you should slow down and read slower. Um, and I know that sounds a little backwards, but it actually helps you appreciate the prose. And so if you're a writer who's reading, read slower when you're bored, because you will learn more. So when I, when I was slowing down, I found myself connecting to Helen just via, she seemed like the most prominent character, but I still never felt a goal. Like it wasn't until she came in that I was like, oh, okay, so there's a little bit of a love story. Oh, okay. So she's got a problem. I'm like a hundred pages into this novel. There was still no, what was that about? What were we reading about? Couldn't we have added an about there to that is, novel? There's so much I want to say here. <laughs> you, you brought <laughs> so many great things to the fore. Because, yes, we did dislike that novel for different reasons. And I totally agree with you that even if you're trying to reproduce Edith Wharton, you've got to throw a modern reader a bone because we are who we are. Mm -hmm. The other thing was, in spite of the fact that Diaz is an obvious music lover and knows a lot about music and how music is put together... What I was missing in the first part, the first 100 pages, was musicality of the sentence making. Now, Diaz is a self-described constructor of sentences. In fact, he says about himself, I think of myself as a writer of sentences. And when I hear an author say that, they have my highest respect. Because what that means is that they appreciate writing down to the atomic level mm -hmm. of understanding vocabulary, sentence structure, grammar. And so when you find someone who says that about their own writing, and then you see page after page of sentences with the exact same rhythm that are starting with subordinate clauses, every sentence, I feel, starts on its own back foot. Because when you start a sentence with a subordinate clause, like he begins his book, he begins his Pulitzer Prize winning book with the word because, <laughs> right? So, and, and by the way, he wrote this wonderful treatise on Borges, the, the poetry of Borges, and he begins that with the word if. <laughs> and so that might be a, a tick of Diaz. A stylistic that, experimental. I think that's kind of him coming through. Yeah, yeah exactly. But I will say that the journey that you take through Gilded Age prose, there is such a payoff mm -hmm. later on in the book because of the mysteries revealed, because of the layers exposed, because of all the Easter eggs that Diaz plants throughout the book. Explain to us what Easter eggs are, Gary. <laughs> well, you know, they're in video games. If you click on them, if you know where to click, something magical will, will appear. And the way that Diaz is using the term Easter egg is really not quite the same, but he's talking about sort of echoes that are repeated from section to section. And I think the most prominent one is the one that we discussed in the meeting, which is Ida's love of detective stories or mysteries, mystery, I guess. Mystery novels. My yeah. Mystery novels mm -hmm. that she would then read and repeat back to her immigrant, Italian immigrant father and enrapturing him with the telling of the story over dinner, where both their dinners get cold because they are so into this. And Ida must be an amazing storyteller, which means she's probably a pretty good novelist later on in life. Anyway, that trope or that uh, scene appears somehow in Andrew Bevel's autobiography. If you want to be musical about it, there are variations on themes on throughout theme. the novel. Very nice. Yes. Yeah, this is a very meta moment you're about yes. to describe. <laughs> yeah. I like, yeah. 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 And so the 
So we we're, we first encounter. I don't know. Do we encounter this in the novel? I don't think so. Do you we? mean in the memoir and in Bevel's memoir? No, no, in no, no, in in Vanner's no, novel. because no, because it was uh, because it was actually something Ida did with her father. Right. But then she writes it into Andrew Bevel's memoir while she's writing it, and Bevel comes to believe that it was actually a memory he had with his wife Mildred. Yeah. And so. You know, from reading this memoir that Ida has written and like put in all these, you know, made up stories about his wife, he thinks that this actually happened to the level, which is, this is what makes me think it's super meta, that he interpret or he has his own influence. He says to her that he began thinking he would figure out who the murderer was before she got to the end of the story, but she never, he never wanted to tell Mildred that he knew who the murderer was and he would pretend it was somebody else and like fell for it. And Ida has this realization that she didn't put that part into the story. Yes. That that was something her father used to do with her, but she didn't put it in the memoir. Andrew filled that in himself. And I just thought it was such a meta expo- like explanation of how memory and history works. And that like, we're here half a story and we, collectively we, we fill, fill in, in the, the rest yeah and that is a lot of what this book is about especially in regards to women's stories is yeah. like we hear part of the history we fill in the rest do we trust our own memories which leads to the fourth part of the book which is about <laughs> someone's <laughs> own memories so i guess as i as i was discussing earlier we were discussing with uh the bonds book having helen as the main character which is supposed to be a representation of mildred andrew's wife um mildred's journal is the fourth part of the book and it's the journal right before she's dying and that's the part that is truly the most exciting at least for me it was to really get an idea of who this woman was that was the true mystery of who is mildred bevel well and and in my humble opinion it's the best writing oh it's poetic (laughs) it is it is and it is just it's just like her bedroom right it's it's uh shapes and forms it's it's pared down it's minimalistic It's, it's uh it's modernism. It's, it's, it is. it's uh, high yeah. modernism, as someone described at the meeting, <laughs> who shall remain nameless. So we move from the conventional 19th, early 20th century novel to... To high modernism, to which high is modernism. very much the avant-garde of the 20s and the 30s. Yes. People like, and I and foremost in my mind, is Virginia Woolf. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's with stream of consciousness. So that's right? what he says. He says he, he says he styled it as though Virginia Woolf had w- written uh, philosophical introspections, which <laughs> clearly <laughs> and he says clearly I did not succeed, but that was the idea. And actually, in that section, she refers to Virginia Woolf in reading. It's like I read this whole book, and there are like two sentences in there, right? Do you yeah. remember that? Like yeah. the whole thing was like yeah. two sentences. Before we leave, the the whole idea of telling murder mysteries to the father, I I just want to capture on on audio the sensation in my brain as i'm going through this book so the, so the so the so the first time that we encounter that story of the woman relating to the man a story the man wrapped and then purposefully misguessing who the killer is we first see that in andrew bevel's supposed autobiography and then we see it again in Ida Portenza's recollection of her re- relationship with her own father. And then we see it again when Ida is ghostwriting Andrew Bevel's autobiography. And at that point, there are enough ripples in the pond where it's a complete mind fuck, <laughs> where yes. you don't know because you know you've heard this before. Because at that point, it, it's such a vivid story. And there are other ones like this, but mm-hmm. this is the most vivid, 
that you want to go back and figure out where did that come from? And then it's in that moment that you realize that none of Andrew Bevel's autobiography was written by Andrew Bevel. Yeah. That it's all Ida. And that what we thought was Andrew's voice in part two is Ida. Yeah, that's actually another way that Ida is similar to Diaz in that like Ida went to the library and read all of these books by these different writers to try and nail Andrew Bevel's voice because Andrew Bevel didn't like the sound of his own voice. She tried to write it to sound like him and he thought it was too factual and too plain and too... yeah. Void so then of, she just read biographies or autobiographies mm-hmm. of quote great men mm-hmm. and peace created some sort of like hodgepodge voice for him yeah, yeah which voice. diaz said yeah. that he went i mean you can clearly see it when you're yeah. reading the book in the language that he uses from bonds through bevel's memoir through ida through mildred that's so many different voices and he says he came up with different style guides and syntax for each of the different sections which ida clearly did for andrew bevel's memoir in the book mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He talks about his love of the English language, even just how his face moves when he's speaking English. Really? Yeah. That's cool. It I is. need to watch more interviews with him. <laughs> yeah, actually. And he, he reads out loud the very last sentence of the book. I don't know if Whitney will read it um, sure. from Mildred's journal. And it's, you know, her dying, essentially. Um, so spoiler. But it is, <laughs> I think we all know. We Actually, we know that in the beginning of the book that she dies. So I guess it's not a spoiler. But it is really... Quite Do you want beautiful. me to read starting yeah, through, about the bell jar? Is that uh, where it begins? Or and just this the, very last section? The very last. Very, very last. It like took the last me a paragraph, while, right? This part. Yeah. Words peeling off from things, in and out of sleep, like a needle coming out from under a black cloth and then vanishing again, unthreaded. And that's wow, the end of the book. Beautiful. Yeah. I just think it's such an amazing way to describe such a poetic to death. I mean, that whole last section of the book is so poetic. Oh, it is. Oh. Even and I mean, you didn't even talk about the musical notes that the she, musicality that she can oh. hear she talks in reverse the, order. Yeah, in the in the end of the book, and I just feel like Gary, as a musician, would probably really resonate with. Oh my God! How he put that together. <laughs> Does Diaz know music? There's a quote from the final part. Again, some of my favorite writing in this is from the very last part. It's Mildred's diary. So she's interested in avant-garde music very much. And in this part of the book, she's listening to a bell chime, probably from a church tower. So it's right. dum bum 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 bum, and she's hearing it every hour, and she's analyzing it because that's the way that her mind works. And she has this wonderful quote about call and response. Yeah. If the call and response motif contains our history, that strange lingering ninth, which is a musical interval is the sound of our musical future. And I just thought, I know that ninth. I know that sound. And I couldn't have described it better. I mean, she's describing avant-garde music of the 1920s and 30s in that very simple sentence. And so I just have so much respect for Diaz. It's like, dude, are you a professional musician? Are you I a mean, savant? How deep <laughs> are you? Yeah. Well, I mean, he speaks how many languages? Yeah. And, and uh, so he obviously knows music. And... The references to classical music and favoring certain composers over others. And when her husband engages a string quartet to play, they, they play all these like... The hackneyed old... Shop, yeah, yeah. shop-worn classics yes. like Anna Kleinanach music and the Schubert Quartet or something. And she recognizes that as being very shop-worn. But, and, and here's the genius, but they're very good musicians. And so they found things 
in that music that a, a lesser musician wouldn't have found. So she appreciates that. And I, I can't help but thinking what you said earlier about, if I'm bored with, with the reading. Slow down. Slow down. And, <laughs> and appreciate the craft underneath it. Mm-hmm. And that's what she was doing in that moment. She was, she was echoing that. Yeah, mm-hmm. I appreciate it. So I spoke at length, I think, at the group about this, is in interiority. And it is, in modern writing, something we need. A lot of what I'm talking about is from a lecture I took from Rebecca Mackay, uh, Great Believers, and I have some questions for you. She made this great analogy or you know, discussed how when photography was developed, painting switched from this very realistic style of painting to more abstract, you know, the the modernist stuff, the things that photographs couldn't capture. And when film was developed, novels did the same thing. So pre-film novels were very objective and had this just omniscient style in which they would like bounce around through different people's heads, but never really get into someone's head very deeply. I always think of like, uh, Madame Bovary, Flaubert, Gustave, and how you're, you're never really in someone's head, but you have feel deeply for all of these characters because of the way they write. And I think that's what Diaz did with Bond is kept it very outside of everyone's heads, but you feel for them in the sense of how he describes them. Classic 19th century literature. So when film was developed, film kind of took over novels. But the one thing novels could do or writing fiction could do that cinema wasn't able to do was to get into people's heads. So unless you have a voiceover in cinema, it's very hard to get into the the interiority of a person's thinking. And that is what we expect from modern literature is all of that interiority. So opening trust and reading the first hundred pages of Bond, you're missing that. And I think any modern reader would really feel that distance, as we've described, from Mm. the characters because we don't have interiority. But what's so brilliant is that as we move into Andrew Bevel's memoir, as written by Ida Pretenza, we get more of that interiority because it was more modern. It was like 1920 or 1930s. That's what was expected then. That was the voice of those men were in their head. But then we get into Ida and it's very modern. We're almost always in her head. It's about her feelings, her experience of the world. And then we end it literally completely in interiority because it's Mildred's journal and there is nothing else but what this woman is thinking. And I just think that is so brilliant to take us from absolutely no interiority. So you move from like a wide angle lens Mm -hmm. into like a close up, like of this main character. And while he's doing that, while he's creating, you know, this narrowing of interiority, he's also created this mystery of who really is this woman, because we've just gotten a completely fictionalized version to her husband's fictionalized version as written by somebody else to Ida trying to figure her out. And then by the time we have Mildred on the page, it's just gold. Like I just felt like I was, you know, digging through a gold mine, trying to find whatever I could. It was just the ultimate mystery. Like I wanted to see this woman on the page so clearly and so dearly. It was absolutely perfect. And I think his use of interiority is what created that in a lot of ways beyond just the different levels of which we got to know Mildred up until that point. Mm-hmm. Mm. I think it's a great insight. Mm-hmm. And I know that Diaz was going for that. He he said so in interviews. So here are some things that he talked about as being goals when he was writing Trust. First of all, as we've talked about, he says the book is about having or being denied a voice. That comes through very clearly. Mm-hmm. Diaz also knew that Trust would be in four parts. And he developed a style guide for each section, as you said, Mira. 
to be deeply immersed in one narrative and then there would be another one that would challenge everything that you had learned, even the way in which you had learned to read previously, that was the ultimate goal. So it's sort of this evolution of style and content where you you have new revelations with every section, but it's also being done in a, in a very different style. And isn't that so exciting? Like putting the dots yeah. together? Like that's what, to me, getting through, sorry, boredom, reading bonds. <laughs> I When I started putting the dots together in Ida's section, it, it makes the reader feel brilliant. I think somebody uh, else at the group today was talking about how you have to be a very active reader in this book. Yes. You know, you have to be able to fill in the, the literal blanks if you have the hardcover version in which there's just gaps, you know, and you have to be there to say what that's about, I think is super powerful. And it's what makes you feel so invested by the end of the book. So what we're drinking this evening, because mm. we have a cocktail mm. every time we read and we discuss books. And tonight's cocktail is called The Last Word. Delicious. 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 Very herby. A little sweet. A little sour. Herbaceous. Mm. It's herbaceous, yes. So this is an herbal prohibition classic. Not created in New York, but in Detroit. But in the, in the era, roughly, that we're discussing. <laughs> so I chose this cocktail, obviously. Because who gets the last word? And as I mentioned in the discussion, the song from Hamilton kept running through my head, who lives, who dies, who tells your story. And what was so gratifying to me about this novel is that the woman, this character that everyone else is trying to paint a portrait of, she actually gets the last word. She gets to tell her own story and reveal herself in this book. She gets the last word. So how do you make the last word? How do you make it? What's in it? You mix a little bit of gin with some green chartreuse. Mm. Although green chartreuse, I've learned in the last couple of days, is in yeah short supply. So we used a substitute, something also herbaceous, kind of green herby. Uh, maraschino liqueur, which is made, as you said, not from the maraschino cherries, but from their pits. The pits and stems, yeah. <laughs> the pits and stems. Some freshly squeezed lime juice. Oh. And some amarina cherries to garnish. Oh, perfect. Yes. It was a Shaken over ice. It was delicious. Right? It was delicious. Wonderful. Yeah. I finished mine too quickly and then was envying yours. <laughs> <laughs> if what we've been talking about so far interests you uh, enough to read the book, if you haven't read it already, I would say read the book with a last word. That's a great way. Highly recommend. Great multiple, because the book is over 400 pages. <laughs> You'll need multiple last words. <laughs> History is subject to the tyranny of the irreticulate. History is fiction with an army, Mm. (laughs) which is a variation of history is written by the victors. Yes. Basically, whoever controls the field, whether it's the field of finance or the field of battle, whoever actually ends up on top. Tells the story. Writes the history. Right. And so that's their story. And this ties in nicely with the identity of Ida Partenza and her father, who was an Italian anarchist. And there was a huge anarchist movement, not just in the U.S., but all across Europe in the early part of the 20th century. And one thing that Diaz was really interested in bringing to light was the Italian socialists, the workers' movements that were taking place at that time that had been completely subsumed, that had disappeared from the, the histories of the United States. I never 
studied about this when I was going to school. It wasn't something that that was brought up because it's one of the more embarrassing features sure. of American history. So here's the quote. Anarchists were systematically persecuted in the United States where they served as scapegoats for political and in the case of Italians, even racial anxieties. Mm. The reason I bring up the Italian anarchists is not to go deep into that part of American history, but it's another example within the book that Diaz has woven in the story of an entire group of people who have just been disappeared, and no one is telling their story, so they don't have a story. Another great example of how much research he does, but that he doesn't just dump it in the book like, I did this research, he ties it into the narrative expertly. Or he has it come out as dialogue from a character, so we get to hear Ida's father's stories of what happened in Italy and what Mm -hmm. happened in New York. So he blends it in either to the dialogue of the character or weaves it in without being such an obvious dump of information. I think it's also integral to the plot as well. It's not just the words coming out of their mouths, but Ida at one point realizes that, of course, Andrew Bevel would choose an Italian immigrant from Brooklyn to tell his story because she wouldn't have known better. She wouldn't have known anybody in his circle who could refute the things that he was saying. Mm -hmm. And so if you're going to pick a character at that point in American history who was an outsider you would definitely pick an Italian anarchist Mm -hmm. daughter. (laughs) A female (laughs) who has no power. Mm -hmm. There's a story form called Dramatica that's very intricate. It goes down into like 64 different quadratics of what you need to put a story together. But at the heart of it, it's really just you need to solve a problem. And in order to solve a problem within a novel, you need to counter, you know, have every counter argument that could possibly exist. I don't think that trust is necessarily solving a problem, but it is an exploration of how money or money controls history in a lot of ways and how women are silenced. Mm -hmm. And I think having that Italian anarchist perspective is one of these really fascinating facets or quadratics you could use in, in Dramatica to solve that problem or to make that exploration more pronounced. His obsession with history and studying history. I, I mean, I think everybody can tell this book is so researched What I thought was super amazing for somebody who is obsessed with research and clearly did his so well and so thoroughly is there's no info dumps (laughs) ever. And I think this is something a lot of authors really struggle with is they do all this research and they want to pack it into a novel and they just put these paragraphs of deep information. And while there is tons of deep information, he weaves it into the storyline. It never feels like it's not about the story. It's part of the narrative. Yeah, exactly. The information that he's putting in there has become necessary to the story, which is such a great lesson for writers to take on when they're doing history studies and research is how do you weave it in? You never just want to, you're not writing a nonfiction in this case, you know, you don't want to just like leave a chunk of stats and details. You're not writing a Dan Brown novel where you (laughs) have to get all, give all the salient facts of the different places that you visit. Which is one way that authors do it. Origin was very much a Wikipedia dump, right? Yeah. And and although I agree with you, Mira, that he did not do that, however, he was very clever in making one of the key characters, Ida Partenza, to be a researcher herself. Absolutely. And so it wove into the actual narrative of the book that she was researching at the same, as it just so happens, the same New York Public Library where Diaz got a fellowship to study history at. So in other words, the very 
authors and the very periodicals and the very newspapers that Diaz researched were the same ones that his character researched. So he was able to keep it right on point. I feel like Ida was his alter ego yeah. in this book. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. There are so many parts of that story in which if you hear him talk, he talks about having done himself. Exactly. I mean, well, and let's count the ways. Uh, she was of uh, Italian origin. So is he. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, A parent who was an Italian immigrant. And what? So what other ways was Diaz like Pretenza? Because his reading was informing his writing. Like as he was doing research and he was reading like nonfiction books about other great men. Ida was researching great men in history to kind of get a sense of like how to flesh out Andrew Bevel's story. And actually she was reading Virginia Woolf and she was reading Edith Wharton. Mm -hmm. And you can tell that those are influences in the first section of trust. Right. And also, uh, this is a little bit too on the nose, but Ida is a novelist. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> a writer, as, an as aspiring writer. Yeah. So, yeah. She was not only creating the character of Mildred like from whole cloth, she was creating him from whole cloth. Not only that, but when she was blackmailed later on. She created on, an entirely new narrative. <laughs> an entirely was, different that narrative. That was yeah. fictionalized. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think my favorite, which is to me feels the most visceral, is how at the end when Ida is going through Mildred's diaries and how yes. it's like they'd never been opened. And then Aaron Diaz talked about how when he was doing this research and finding these, you know, articles from women from that era, they had never been opened in the same way. Mm. She lives in Brooklyn. He lives in Brooklyn. I mean, yeah. come on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, there are a lot of parallels there. And, and Diaz has gone on record as saying that Ida is his favorite character in the book which doesn't which is clear not surprising in the way that it's written because i think the book really takes off as soon as we hear from ida's voice don't Mm -hmm. you think absolutely it would be fun to kind of try and discuss inciting incident and climax oh yeah i would love to i just think this book is so experimental in its form it's really hard to say this fits into the classic 3x structure you know that we've all taught been taught to write a book in and so to try and force that feels hard for me. I feel like I'm just guessing. I, I don't know how I would get to that without actually having a discussion with the author and being like, oh, right, I saw how you wove that in. But you had some great ideas. Well, when I analyze these novels, and I'm on number 55 now, I do a number of things, some of which are pure math. So one of the things that I do is I produce a chart, which is the entire novel on one chart. And every chapter, every section, every subsection is spaced so that the width of that section corresponds to its percentage of the entire novel. So if you have a very wide chapter, that's obviously taking more words than a very narrow chapter. To give you a sense of how the book was constructed, its ebb and flow, its overall structure. And I also figure out the percentages of present tense, past tense, average sentence length, average paragraph length, just to kind of get a sense of reading statistics. All right, that's that's the math. And then on top of that, I do a sentiment analysis, which is more AI. So by assigning a value to every paragraph, and I do it paragraph by paragraph. What is AI looking for in each of those paragraphs? They're looking for highly charged words of a, of a, of a positive or a negative connotation. So my favorite example is if you're a novelist talking about the sun, you can say it was a happy sun. It was a vengeful sun. 
You can assign values to inanimate objects, which reflect the inner thoughts of the characters in a scene. You could do the same with anything. And novelists do this, right? Mm-hmm. This is this is what this is how we make literature. This is how you add mood to scene exactly. readers. <laughs> but but an AI which does is not human just looks at those words and goes, Oh, those are positive or those are negative. The beautiful thing and the sad thing at the same time about being human is that we absorb them. Sometimes they go straight to our subconscious and we don't even register that we're reading them, which is why we're doing what we do. That's kind of nice when it does that. And just, goes, just enjoy the book. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Stop. <laughs> it's been a minute. <laughs> You're reading way too many manuscripts, Mira. But uh, most of the words that are in the book are sort of leaning one way or another by design. And so what the AI picks up on is, is this a positive sentiment or a negative sentiment? And over time, when you look at the entire sweep throughout the entire novel, you can find what Kurt Vonnegut identified as different story shapes, which has been reinforced by some research which was done over the past six, seven years, that there are a finite number of story shapes that we tend to find in traditional novels. Now, this is not a traditional novel, but we have a unicorn here in this book. It doesn't have a traditional shape, but it, it does. Did. Did so, it, it, it does. It's, ah. a, it's, a, it's the shape of a tragedy. And, and it's basically, uh, if you imagine a rags to riches story, starting at a low sentiment and going to a high sentiment, which is what Diaz is railing against, yeah. this book, it's almost a straight line from top to bottom. So, so he's words, inverting the structure. He's inverting the structure, yeah. which blows my mind. I wonder if he knows. I wonder if he's even aware that <laughs> he like pulled that off. Do you like to send him your sentiment analysis? I think and we say need to I... get him subscribed to this podcast. <laughs> I mean, I just feel like, I mean, a lot of authors hear what a reader read and interpreted, and the author will say, oh my God, I, I didn't even intend that, but yeah, that's perfect. Yeah. Like, you know, yeah. so yeah. I kind of wonder if he's even aware that he if he's wrote even conscious of a sentiment analysis for the opposite of a rags to riches. Yeah. Isn't that cool? That's yeah. really cool. But I, I can't think that it's by chance. Because he was so consciously trying to do that, to subvert the theme. But anyway. So maybe his subconscious pulled it off. <laughs> Could be. You never know. You never know. Yeah. But anyway, the other mathematical thing that I do is I'm a big believer in the magical midpoint of a book. Every book that we've done has something significant that happens at the midpoint. And now thanks to you, Gary, I now look at, I read on my iPad, as you know, so that I can highlight and quickly find quotes. And I am very cognizant of when I'm at the 25% mark, when I'm at the 33% mark, 50%, 66, 75, all the way up to the end. Yeah. Thank you. So I'm very aware because of this. And it it doesn't always work out because not every author thinks in quarters or thirds. Or study structure. Or or study structure. But their editor might. But their editor might. And yeah, so, so, so we do... We do see always something significant at the at the halfway point and maybe sometime something significant at the thirds and the quarters. I mean, so much of what we're talking about in novels isn't a novel needs to do this by this point and do this in order to create a novel. Like what is a novel? And it's something an artist or a writer has created. We just happen to study that story form makes it more satisfying when you hit these beats. And so we've learned that a beat at this point tends to make a story you, it, lures, it lures the reader in quicker if you have an earlier inciting incident because then the story is getting started. You know, and in classic hero's journey, it's they're in a different world. Yeah. 
you know, we, we're going somewhere else, there's something to happen, etc. But it doesn't need to happen that way. And I think the ultimate point for everyone is that novel structure is a lot like English grammar. It's back constructed, like the rules are all back constructed. Mm -hmm. We know when a story engages us, we're not quite sure why, but it's definitely not the same for every novel. Absolutely. And there is not a formula yes. that is going to apply to every single novel that you read to be able to uncover what is the mechanism that is making this thing go. And this is why it's so important to read as a writer, because <laughs> you learn through reading. And I think Elizabeth Gilbert, she said she learned so much of her of how to tell a story through reading Charles Dickens, like, yes, which is crazy to me, because <gasps> I, I love Dickens. No, I, I mean, I just think <laughs> no, but her reading Dickens, her right? reading Dickens, because if you read her writing and then read Dickens, you're not going to yeah, be like, oh, yeah. that's where she got. But it's about the structure. And I think this is why our podcast exists and why you started this group is because it's not necessarily that you have to follow some mathematical equation. There's so many of them. Like a romance writer might be like, yes, I need to hit this beat by this beat by this beat in order to make this plot happen, in order to do this, in order to satisfy the reader at the end. Because that is what a reader's expectations are reading commercial romance fiction. Sure. But in literary work, which is typically what we're We're reading. looking for experiment. We're looking for art form. Yes. And one of the things that makes trust by Hernan Diaz so amazing is that it is such a unique form and he did experiment and he pulled it and off. And he did break the rules. He broke so many rules and yes. he pulled it off so well. It is not classic story structure. It doesn't need to fit into that mold, but it is brilliant all on its own because yes. he, because of how he broke the rules, because of how he broke the mold and still managed to create a great story within it. I want to have a couple quotes from Diaz. Mm -hmm. One of them is his writing credo, which is quote, Literature is written primarily with other literature. Literature is a very slow conversation with authors that I love. I'm trying to respond to things that have moved me. And Gary, that, that sounds so, so close to something that you always say, which is literature is conversation with other literature. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And the other one, which I just love, is Ida Portenza in the book when she's in her memoir. She writes about how she's thrilled by the novel bonds. And she says, the vague space between the intellectual and the emotional. Since that moment, she's talking about reading the book, I have identified that ambiguous territory as the exclusive domain of literature. And I've never seen a better description of the magic of what a novel can do. It's that liminal space between the intellectual and, and the emotional that yeah. just is charged with ions. Mm -hmm that I think excites all three of us and hopefully will excite you, dear reader, to read this book. It's a really good one. I feel like we spend all of this time in a book that's about money and power and a city. And then there's Mildred at the end being like, none of it matters but art. But music, that's all that's yeah, left but at that's, the end. I mean, art yeah. being music. I was going maybe the similar place that you were in one of the books we read recently. Stella Maris. Stella Maris. Philosophically, she's saying... If you take away all that we know, all that's left is music. Yes. Something like that. Yeah. Right? Music is at the core of everything. And to sort of tie a bow on this, Mildred's deep understanding of the musical trends of the 20s and the 30s underlined who she was. In other words, it's not an Ida Portenza or it's not a, a Diaz, who's even a more skillful or writer, you know, making up a story. 
right? To say, oh yeah, well, she liked music. Uh, just make some examples, right? Or she liked to paint. Here's some floral designs. Mm -hmm. But no, I mean, Diaz is showing us his erudition to say, no, no, no. Mildred knows her shit. She knows, showing, showing, showing. Mm -hmm. She knows, and not only that, but he's giving musical examples of inverted retrograde, which is a treatment that 16th century contrapuntalists would understand. Mm -hmm. Bach used that, the mm -hmm. exact same technique that Mildred took a D and F sharp and E and an A and turned it into a G, a C, a B flat, and a D. Like, only a musician would appreciate that. This is actually a great example when we talk about show, don't tell so many times authors think when you hear show, don't tell it's about, you know, describing the color of the wind or something, you know, they get into this like extensive amount of detail of somebody and that's not showing this. I think when you look at what he did with Mildred, he stopped telling us that she was a fan of music or great with music, which is what skilled, her husband did, which is what, repeatedly. which is what Vanner did in bond. Yeah. And what they, what Ida and Bevel tried to do in his memoir was telling people that she was into music. And then, he showed us Mildred into music. Mildred never once said, I love music mm -hmm. throughout this, or I am good with music, you know, and, and it wasn't listing these, you know, artists that she was a fan of. He went so deep. And part of that, which is huge, is trusting the reader, trusting the reader that maybe not every reader is going to analyze Mildred's section as we are, but they will feel it. You trust the reader that they're going to figure this stuff out and fill in the blanks and just, you know, feel who that character is. And I think this is a part of Show, Don't Tell that so many newer authors don't understand. Mm -hmm. There's a quote in the book, which is, as Ida Partenza is creating her fictions, that says you need to provide enough detail to make it seem real. And that's a good novelistic trick. You want to name the brand of the cookies or mm -hmm. the, the brand of the car. Do you, this is do, when do she starts it? researching all these other wealthy people because she needs to know brand names of airplanes and yachts and things like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you need, you need to know it was a Philco radio. <laughs> you know, that, that makes it real. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because these novels were slightly outdated, I turned to the press. Most issues of Fortune, Forbes, and other similar magazines held at the New York Public Library fe featured lengthy profiles of financiers, industrialists, patrician families. I found details of business transactions, descriptions of residencies, travel itineraries, reposts of lavish parties. Bevel was driven around in a Maybach Zeppelin with a 12-cylinder aircraft engine, but he sped around at 110 miles per hour in a super sports delage when he went to Glen Cove where his 300-foot transatlantic diesel yacht recently... You know, so she's, she's searching for those details because yeah. that's what gives it a little weight and the specificity of it that makes that seem... You know, it's yeah. what he's really showing in that scene is the excessiveness. Hmm. I feel like, you know, he, all these oh, details yeah. add up, but what he's really saying is Bevel was excessive, mm -hmm. you know, and those details add up to that. It's yeah. not really about the details of the device. In that right. Yeah. I want to also go back to what you brought up earlier about music, which mm -hmm. is for me, good writing, all good writing is musical. Which is in another reason to, to read it out loud, yeah. because then you can hear the rhythm and the cadence of the language. And the and the automatopoeia of yeah. the words themselves. Like the alliteration. Saying, yeah. Like like Bevel actually speaking English. It's a it's a certain feeling you get when you speak English. Oh Dia speaking English. Oh, Dia, yes. sorry. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Which is different from Italian exactly. or Spanish or uh -huh. whatever. Right. And I feel that that's another joy of Mildred's memoir at the very end is it's so musical the the writing itself the sentences themselves the variation the 
poetry of it, Mm -hmm. the way that she's pulling up these incredible images and just tying different ideas together. It's just magical. I I keep thinking if a newer author were to submit this to an agent nowadays, they'd probably put a prologue on it. You know, I just... A prologue? A prologue, yeah. I know agents are always like, no prologues. But like just... Because it does start in this classically unmodern style of writing and mm. it's not super engaging and an agent would quickly be like, mm. I'm so disappointed in the modern reader. I know. <laughs> and so not every agent. There's definitely people out there who are strictly looking for literature and would yeah. look for this. But I mean, agents, the kind of, I think the the theme out there with agents lately is like no prologues. I'm definitely not one of those people. Mm. But I think a newer author might be tempted to put a prologue on it just to be like, let me capture you. Let me tell you where this is going. You know, let me promise you that mm-hmm. this is going to pay off. Mm-hmm. And Diaz doesn't do that. He starts mm-hmm. in this and, and it does pay off obviously, but you have to trust the writer yes. to do it. Yeah. I mean, I, I take two things from that one. Don't try this at home kids. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Cause you're probably not going to get published. But the second one is thank God there are writers and publishers to allow creatures like this book out into the wild so that we can enjoy them. Yeah. Thank you, Hernan Diaz. This was a delight. (laughs) Well, thank you all for joining us and join us next time when we talk about Lessons in Chemistry by Bonnie Garmus. Totally different style of book. (laughs) (laughs) Totally different, but worthy of reading, worthy of study. Absolutely. Worthy of reading like a writer. Well, that's it for this edition of Writers Who Read. Be sure to listen to our next episode when we'll discuss Lessons in Chemistry by Bonnie Garmus. Thanks to my cohort, Whitney Pinion, Mira Landry, and the Boulder Writers Alliance, sponsors of this group since 2018. Please visit writerswhoread.com for a discussion guide of this book, as well as all the other novels we've covered. If you'd like to join us online or in person for one of our upcoming discussions, a complete list of future books and registration info is available at writerswhoread.com live. Please subscribe to our monthly newsletter for the latest updates and share this podcast with your fellow readers and writers. We look forward to hearing from you and maybe meeting up at a future event. Till next month, I'm Gary McBride wishing you happy reading and happy writing. Writers Who Read is a production of InRes Media.